Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Wake Smith, author of the recent book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention, published on Cambridge University Press. And Wake is particularly interesting as a guest in that his career has largely been in the in the private sector, in the aviation industry, including experience in modifying aircraft for specialized purposes, which is what brought him to the topic of uh, what is sometimes called uh, solar radiation modification or solar geoengineering, or as his book title refers to, climate intervention. And so he's moved on from his time in the private sector. He's now a fellow at Harvard University, and he's teaching at Yale. Yeah, it was great to have uh, Wake on. And it was an opportunity for us to talk about our area of expertise, which is the solar geoengineering or climate intervention idea. And yeah, the opportunity came up because Wake has published this new book, Pandora's Toolbox, which does a great job of giving an introduction to the context, climate change, you know, what we're doing about it, mitigation, and the new options that are being discussed quite seriously, carbon dioxide removal, which has already received a lot of attention, as well as solar geoengineering, which is more novel, more controversial, and where things are still developing. Um, and yeah, in that book um, and in our podcast, we, we cover these we, these areas and then get into a bit more detail on, on uh, Wake's particular area of expertise, which is the feasibility, like how would you deploy uh, stratospheric aerosol geoengineering? And the answer is high altitude jets. And Wake has done some of the cutting edge work to sort of show that this is possible and to work out the costs and the practicalities. So it was great to get into that with him. Um, yeah, it was great having him on. He's a very clear speaker. He's written a great book. And yeah, check it out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. There's a lot of editing, producing, and other work that comes along with making a podcast. With your help, we can pay for professional support, which will make this podcast sustainable for us in the long run. We do not want to have ads in these podcasts, so if you can go to patreon.com slash challenging climate and ship in a few dollars or pounds or euros a month to help support the show. And now on to our conversation with Wake Smith. Today, we're joined by Wake Smith, who is a senior fellow at the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at Harvard Kennedy School, uh, writing scholarly articles on the feasibility, costs, and governance of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. Uh, Wake also teaches an undergraduate course on climate intervention or geoengineering at Yale University, the syllabus of which forms the basis of his new book, Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. Uh, in this book, he gives a great and accessible overview of climate change, carbon dioxide removal, and solar radiation management, which is also known as solar geoengineering. And um, yeah, prior to this academic career, uh, Smith served in several executive roles in the commercial aviation industry, including as the president of the flight training division of Boeing and the COO of Atlas Air. So you've not got a conventional academic background, uh, Wake. Um, can you tell us what your background is and how you became interested in climate change? 
So you've outed me very early in the interview, but you're right. I'm a uh, recovering businessman and not a, a traditional academic background. Um, as you note, I had several senior positions in uh, commercial aviation and aerospace, I started as a consultant, went into senior management, and then uh, late in my career into private equity. But six, seven years ago, I became uh I got to a point in my career where I was seeking to do other things that might have a different sort of impact. I became aware of the degree to which there is a significant aviation component in one facet of climate interventions, that being stratospheric aerosol injections, which uh, we'll get to in greater detail later, I'm sure. And I became aware that there wasn't in the uh, academic community, uh, someone with the sort of aviation background that I bring to it, and that left a lot of unanswered questions, uh, which I am continuing to seek to answer. Answering those aviation questions is quickly bringing me to other questions, ethical questions and governance and policy questions. But all of what I have done in this field starts with the nitty-gritty um, aviation questions of how would we get gunk up in the sky and how would we pay for it? To your new book, it focuses on not just stratospheric aerosol injections, but the broader set of solar radiation management techniques and carbon dioxide removal, which are both controversial, hence I think the Pandora's reference. Um, but the first third of the book gives the context and it gives, I think, what's quite a nice accessible summary on climate change and the conventional responses to it. So I think most of this must have been very new to you or pretty new to you. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious what struck you most as you learned about climate change? Uh, what surprised you? Well, uh, you're, you're summarizing it correctly. In my uh, academic research and scholarly papers, I, I, I row the very narrow hoe that I uh, or hoe the very narrow row that I earlier referred to. But the course I teach at Yale and the book that derived from that course are intended for a college junior who walks in the room uh, in September, not understanding how to spell the word climate, and uh, seeks to tell the full story so that when we get to climate interventions, uh, one has a proper context into which to slot them. Neither CDR, uh, carbon dioxide removal, nor solar radiation management are, quote, the solution to climate change. They're not alternative to uh, solutions to uh, mitigation or decarbonization. We still need to do all of that. But uh, I do think that there is a role in the broader climate story for those other interventions. And so you're right, the book uh, seeks to put all of that in context. After giving this climate introduction, um, you, you wrap that first third of your book up with a very provocatively titled chapter, Our Descendants Will Demand Climate Intervention. What about that climate context the, of where we are now with the climate problem led you to that conclusion? I became aware and um, remain acutely aware of something that I'm afraid the, the, the general public uh, is not aware of. The following is not new to science, but it is news to most people uh, whom I uh, speak with who aren't experts in the climate arena. And that is that uh, net zero is unlikely to be the end of the story. Uh, 
And you had earlier asked what has most surprised me in this context, in this contextual part of the book. And the answer is that. I think that most people uh, believe that when we get to net zero, we're all done. And by the way, that would be true if we got to net zero early, say by mid-century, as the IPCC would urge that we do. But I'm afraid that we are not likely to get to uh, net zero by mid-century. I think this is a much longer, more complicated, uh, more expensive process than that. And so whereas the world broadly imagines that we are on track vis-a-vis the Paris goals, I think a a careful um, review of the circumstances, a careful review of the AR6 report that has been published in three chapters over the last uh, year indicates that we are likely not on that path, that we are likely on a path that leads to uh, a much later arrival at net zero. And the problem with all of that is that late net zero doesn't get us to the same place at a different time. It gets us to a very different place. If we don't uh, get to net zero until early in the next century, rather than in the middle of this century, it's highly likely that the amount of climate change we will have bought into is not the relatively benign 1.5C that is the IPCC target, uh, it's like it's much more likely that we're in the three C territory, and three uh, C or thereabouts is a figure that does now pop up as the middle of the road projection that the IPCC in the in the AR six uh, has focused upon, and three C of climate change by the end of this century, or frankly at any other time, that's a huge deal and a much more profound change to the Earth's system than I think most people believe, uh, most of the general public is aware we are likely headed for. So all of that is is a major surprise, and I think is something that the world needs much better to understand. But I, I guess the motivation to, to introduce these ideas is, is, the, is the climate harms. Why will... Why is it that we'll have to wait for our descendants to demand it? Why is no one demanding this now? I'm afraid, and teaching this course has further reinforced my fear, that vague descriptions of harms to our great-grandchildren are not enough to motivate the world today to undertake a significant degree of personal sacrifice in terms of lowering our standard of living. People are just, by and large, not prepared to make that sacrifice. In some sense, the climate problem is too slow to solve because the harms will mostly be exported to the future rather than harms that we will experience in the near future. And again, humanity just hasn't, I'm unaware of a prior problem of this structure where humanity has stepped up and made sacrifice today for harms a hundred years from now or to prevent harms from deriving a hundred years from now. That's a that's a difficult ethical position to try to put people in. And PS, I want to make sure that I don't here come across as a uh, sort of finger waving climate scold. I too would have trouble giving up, say, flying. Flying uh, on aircraft is an enormous proportion of my carbon footprint. I imagine the same may be true of you folks. 
And am I yet prepared to give up flying on the altar of climate change? That's, that's just, that's difficult. But if we're not prepared to begin to make substantial sacrifices in terms of lifestyle, we're not going to address this problem, or at least we're unlikely to address this problem on the time frame that would be ideal. I'm an old enough guy to have learned that my ability to predict the future is pretty limited. I wouldn't have expected six months ago that we would be watching a World War II style tank battles unfold in Europe today, and yet we are watching that. And so the future may surprise us, and it may be that we uh, find a path to net zero much more quickly than I can currently foresee, but I'm worried about the opposite. So let's dive into what you call climate intervention, an umbrella term for two very different categories of technological activities that can reduce at least the impacts of climate change, if not climate change itself. And the first such category is carbon dioxide removal. We might, in this conversation, end up calling that CDR. Can you tell us a little bit about what CDR is and whether it's necessary? I'm confident it will be necessary, but let me set the stage for a moment, if I may. If it does turn out that the net zero year is not 2050, but 2100 or a year such as that, What that will mean is that we've continued to emit for another 50 years, probably at a very high rate. And so by the time we finally turn the emission spigot off, the level of the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will be much higher than it is today and much higher than we would want. But let's imagine nonetheless that we're in the net zero year. Back here in the city that I'm now speaking to you from, Paris, all the world's leaders have gathered yet again to celebrate this momentous occasion bigger than the moon landings. This would be a huge human achievement. But if we as people are popping champagne to celebrate New Year's Eve of the net zero year, if we then advise them that they will have to live for centuries, for their entire lifetime and generations thereafter, at the peak level of temperature and the peak climate damages that derive from that temperature, what do you imagine those people standing on the banks of the Seine in the net zero year will demand? Well, the answer is they're going to say, we ain't done. If, if that's the climate that the past has exported to me in the net zero year, we need more action. And the first sort of action that I expect the world will demand is that which you have uh, uh, brought up, carbon dioxide removal. The problem, of course, is that the uh, natural drain by which the climate system will remove carbon dioxide in particular, methane and N2O are faster to exit the climate system. And the exit of CO2 is complicated. There are different processes that happen on different timescales. But to simplify the story, this stuff will hang around for centuries to millennia. And that will be too long for the people alive in the net zero year to live with. They will say, no, 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 no. We need to repair the climate substantially in my lifetime. 
And the way to do that is carbon dioxide removal. So after we have spent a few centuries burning uh, fossil fuels with the effect of deploying carbon into the atmosphere, that wasn't our intent, but that's what we did. We will need essentially to do exactly the opposite, to suck the carbon back down out of the atmosphere and bury it not in a tree, which is a fragile bank of carbon that will die and leach its carbon back in to the climate system. No, no, we need to put that carbon back underground, ironically, where we got it from when we drilled for oil in the first place. But if we're going to repair the climate after potentially we ruin it, the way to do that is carbon dioxide removal. Suck the carbon out of the atmosphere, bury it in the Earth's crust. But if we do that at the pace that we're now putting it into the atmosphere, and of course, that's a somewhat arbitrary choice. We could hope we could do it faster. It may uh, be that we do it slower. But if we did it at the same pace that we're now emitting it, it would take centuries to return the CO2 levels in the atmosphere to what future generations may find acceptable. After all, it took centuries to build the carbon level to the level that it uh, was at. And the problem with all of this is the expense of it. My estimate, even at the optimistic end of how much it might cost us to remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere and sequester it in the ground, $100 a ton, uh, which again is at the low end of current, the current literature. Many people think it's $600 or $1,000 a ton, but at merely $100 a ton, the size of the industry necessary to remove CO2 from the atmosphere at the rate we're now putting it into the atmosphere would be equivalent to the entire fossil fuel industry today. So all the oil, all the gas, all the coal, that's how big an expense we are obligating the future to undertake to begin to try to repair the climate that we may bequeath to them. And again, I don't think the future is going to be very happy about that, but I'm afraid if those are the options they confront, they are likely to want to pursue that option. One of the reasons that climate change is such a difficult problem is that carbon dioxide, unlike other pollutants, doesn't wash out of the sky, so to speak, on human timescales. I mean, we've had pollution problems before. Sulfur dioxide has been in the air, particulates, uh, ground level ozone, etc. And we collectively have undertaken action to reduce those pollutants. And the payoff is short term, right? We have cleaner air. We have much cleaner air, at least in the uh, industrialized countries, than we did 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. And I think that this is uh, an underappreciated aspect of carbon dioxide is its long lifespan. And it's one of the reasons that the benefits of cutting emissions are so delayed, which makes a problem, and the fact that we need to clean up our mess, so to speak, proactively afterwards through carbon dioxide removal. Now, can you help us understand a little bit about how we might do carbon dioxide removal? You speak of pulling it out of the air and putting it underground, but there's a pretty wide diversity of techniques. What are your sort of top level categories of carbon dioxide removal? Well, let me first note that you've characterized the, the problem in a way that I think is helpful. I think many people do analogize with respect to CO2 
to particulate air pollution or sulfur dioxide. And they imagine, as Beijing did in the Olympics uh, some years ago, that if they turn off all the factories two, two, we two weeks beforehand and limit driving in the central city, the air will be cleaner for the Olympics. And for particulate air pollution, it works just that way because, again, that material washes out of the atmosphere in days or weeks. This ain't like that. Again, people, unfortunately, I think, have the view that similarly, if we get to net zero emissions, uh, we're good and we just ain't good. But uh, to answer your question specifically, the two techniques that I would seek to highlight in respect of uh, CDR, the first one is flue gas capture. The concentration of CO2 in a smokestack is 5 to 25% perhaps, but let's call it 15%. The concentration in ambient air is 400 parts per million. And so if you want to catch fish, you fish where the fish are, and the fish are in smokestacks. And the reason one would do that is that the energy required to remove the carbon from any package of air is positively correlated with how much CO2 there is in that package of air. So it's way less energy intensive, way more cost effective to remove uh, CO2 from smokestacks before it goes into the atmosphere. Now, to be clear, that's negative emissions potentially before uh, we reach net zero. That's a form of mitigation. But the uh, carbon dioxide removal that we should be pursuing as quickly as we can possibly get the world to do it, this one ain't a future thing, this should be a tomorrow thing, is to put big scrubbers on the top of smokestacks that begin to remove that CO2 from the air, from the effluent before it gets into the air, uh, because it's much cheaper to capture it there than it will be to let it go into the air and capture it thereafter. And scaling up our flue gas capture around the world would be an enormous forward step in hastening the pace to net zero. So again, this is really mitigation, but I bring it up here because the technology required to capture CO2 from flue gases is very similar, not precisely the same, but very similar to that which is required to capture the uh, uh, CO2 from ambient air. So to the extent that we undergo a big retrofit of our current fixed point emission sources, that will help dramatically accelerate the technological innovation necessary to do this. Moreover, the back-end technology, we first capture the carbon, but then we've got to compress it and uh, purify it and put it in a pipeline and ship it to a storage site and pump that CO2 into the ground and thereafter monitor it to make sure it doesn't uh, seep back up to the surface. All of that back-end transport and storage infrastructure is exactly the same, whether we're getting the CO2 from ambient air or from flues. So it would be an enormous forward step vis-a-vis -vis carbon capture to undergo a huge scaling of flue gas capture. And P.S., the U.S. and Netherlands, countries in which you gents live, are two of the world absolute leaders in um, figuring out how to intervene effectively in the private sector in order to get this flue gas capture scaling going. So hats off to both of those countries. But eventually, hopefully, we do get to net zero. 
And one aspect of that will mean there are thereafter no more flus to remediate. We've either knocked the flu down because there's no longer a coal-fired power plant there in the first place, or we've got a scrubber on top of that flu, but eventually we run out of flus. And then, but only then, should we begin the process of actually trying to pull this CO2 from the air. So people focus on direct air capture at somehow sexier or more intriguing to people. And so when people talk about um, uh, capturing carbon, they're almost inevitably talking about direct air capture. Direct air capture is in our future, but it's not in our near future. What we need to focus the world on is flue gas capture, but eventually we will get to that Herculean task of trying to wash the whole atmosphere of the earth in order to remove uh, a huge amount of this CO2 from it that we have put there. You didn't mention working with ecosystems, trees and soil and uh, peat, for example, not peat Irvine, but uh, uh, thick organic material down in the ground. Many people would describe peat as thick and organic. <laughs> Uh, what's, uh, are, are you skeptical of so-called nature-based solutions or, uh, uh, ecosystem-based methods of carbon dioxide removal? If so, why? I am, uh, one of my goals is to kill trees, not the trees in the forest, but to kill the idea that trees are the solution to the climate problem. There is way too much enthusiasm about planting trees as the solution. And of course, part of the reason that people are enthusiastic about that is it requires no sacrifice on anybody's part. We just send kindergartners into a field and help them dig holes to put little saplings in and wasn't that cute. And it is uh, cute. And it would have a very marginal impact on the climate problem. But people misunderstand a couple of things about trees. Uh, one of them is how consumptive of land a huge trillion tree planting program would be. And P.S., we can't plant trees where trees won't grow well. We've got to plant trees in places where trees will grow well. So if there's a place where trees can grow and there's no tree growing there now, why would you guess that is? Well, it's because some industrious human a decade or a century or a millennium ago cut down that forest to put a field there or a road or a house or whatever. And so taking little bits of land out of economic productivity for trees, that, that could be done. Taking huge percentages of the world's arable land and devoting it to this least economically productive use, that just ain't going to happen. So, so it's not that any individual tree doesn't help. It's that we can't scale this on any, anywhere near the, the magnitude of the problem that we've got. The, the, there was a recent IPCC report that estimated that trees might be able to contribute 5% to the carbon removal need that is required and organic soils might be similar. So we've got to stop kidding ourselves that we can primarily solve this problem via nature-based solutions. The problem is just bigger than that, unfortunately. This excess carbon dioxide that we humans have already put in the air, as we discussed a moment ago, will be there for centuries, but not forever. 
naturally, its largest destination as it's pulled out of the air will be the oceans. It will dissolve into the oceans, and then as the oceans circulate, it ends up in the deeper and deeper ocean. What about using oceans as a means to remove carbon dioxide from the air? There's a number of proposals. There's uh, increasing rate of circulation of the ocean. There's fertilizing the oceans in areas that are iron poor, which would increase the rate at which biological processes pull carbon dioxide into the deeper ocean. We're grinding up uh, minerals on beaches that as they react with the acidity in the water have the indirect effect of pulling CO2 out of the air. What potential do you see in marine-based carbon dioxide removal? Here, I'm going to punt somewhat. I think that it isn't yet clear whether this can be a substantial part of the solution or not. So I'm not bringing to this the degree of skepticism that I bring to trees and regenerative agriculture. But certainly the world's worst geoengineering experiment thus far was the ocean iron fertilization experiment off of British Columbia some uh, a decade or more ago that was more nearly a stunt in marine dumping and water pollution than it was in uh, scrubbing carbon out of the uh, air or the ocean. It didn't turn out that that experiment actually did capture much carbon. The idea was that these critters would eat the carbon and then they would sink to the bottom of the ocean. In fact, as they sank, uh, some other critter ate them and, and it didn't turn carbon into stone, which is the ultimate fate of carbon in the atmosphere. But people talk about ocean liming and, and uh, increased or enhanced mineralization as it's referred to. My skepticism about those things, particularly the latter thing, uh, enhanced uh, fertilization, is once again a scale one. I think that the amount of energy required to grind up millions and millions of tons of stone and then distribute it all over the world, you know, stone is heavy. And this is an energy intensive intervention that will lead thereafter to a slow absorption of CO2 into minerals. I'm not sure that it doesn't work, so I'm going to return to my first statement, which is I don't know, but I haven't yet seen compelling evidence that that these things do work and that they don't um, uh, create pollution problems in our oceans, which create all manner of other uh, solutions. So, So maybe on this one, I should say we need tools. If we don't know that this one, if we don't yet know this one is bad, uh, I'm all for uh, uh, researching it and trying to better understand its uh, potential. To quote Bill McKibben, climate journalist, there is no silver bullet in the climate arena. There's only silver buckshot. So we will need lots of little solutions. And uh, it must be that there's a way to enable the oceans to be some part of the broader solution. Now, reaching deeper into Pandora's toolbox, we come across solar radiation management. What is it? And what does it offer that the other climate policies don't? So I'm going to return to my hypothet of standing on the bank of the Seine in the uh, net zero year and ask what those people are going to demand of the world at that time. I think it is likely that they will be willing, if climate damages are really bad, 
uh, they will be willing to begin to undertake climate repair so that at least by the end of their lifetime, if not by the beginning, uh, the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are much reduced and we begin to return to a climate somewhat similar to the one we previously had. But that doesn't solve the problem in their lifetime, it, it, or it doesn't solve much of it. Uh, that's, a again, likely a centuries-long intervention. So I expect those people will also ask, well, no, 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 how do we cool the earth now in my lifetime in the, in the near future? And the least bad idea that we have by which to do that is stratospheric aerosol injection. So this is the idea of recreating in a man-made way what volcanoes occasionally do naturally, which is to throw huge quantities of reflective aerosols up into the lower stratosphere. If you just put them into the troposphere, the layer of the atmosphere closest to the earth. They just rain back down in the next rainstorm. They're there for a week or so. But if you get them up above the rain clouds into the stratosphere, the lower stratosphere, then they will likely endure for 12 to 18 months. If they are emitted near the equator, they will be transported by uh, a global circulation, the Brewer-Dobson circulation to the poles. And so you end up getting a veil over the entire earth that might deflect out one or two percent of the incoming sunlight and thereby slightly cool the earth relative to the unengineered state. Once again, in exactly the same way that the world after a very big volcanic eruption is cooler by a degree Celsius for a year. It's that same uh, idea. And unlike carbon dioxide removal, this would merely manage a symptom of climate change. It wouldn't, it's not penicillin. It doesn't cure the disease. It's merely sort of planetary morphine, but it would be planetary morphine. It would cool the earth dramatically. It would cool the earth quickly and it would cool the earth relatively remarkably cheaply, tens of billions of dollars a year rather than single digit trillions of dollars a year for carbon dioxide removal. So in uh, stratospheric aerosol injections, or SAI, we have a tool that might work very quickly and cool the earth dramatically in the lifetimes of the people who, who may want that. So, yeah, I agree that stratospheric aerosol injection is the leading global proposal for uh, solar radiation management. But there's, a, there's been a lot of other ideas put out, but not many of them are necessarily good ideas. Um, and I think some of them fall down on, on the engineering side. So wh what are some of the other ideas out there and um, what, were your, what were your takes on them? The, the next one, as you well know, uh, in terms of sort of um, how likely it appears that we could do it and it would work, is marine cloud brightening, where we would loft into the air above the oceans salt water that we're just pumping up from the sea. Uh, the water may evaporate, but some of the salt crystals may remain in the air. They may get lofted into the uh, boundary layer. Those may create uh, nucleation sites that either create new clouds or brighten existing clouds. And by virtue of that additional cloud cover, we may deflect out a little bit of the incoming sunlight 
coming to the earth. As you know, this is a much more localized proposal. Uh, one could do it in particular uh, places on the earth, and one really only uh, it would only work in particular conditions in various places around the earth. Again, principally over water, not over land. But on this one, we're far less far along in terms of understanding how to do it. The first real experiments, as you know, are happening these days, this year, over the Great Barrier Reef, where there's an Australian project that is seeking to employ clouds over the reef to cool the water uh, that surrounds the reef and perhaps thereby save the reef. That experiment will shed a lot of light on whether this idea works or not. It's another idea like stratospheric aerosols that if we could do it, it would be very cheap. But again, it's just clouds are so fiddly uh, to the extent that we brighten the cloud in ways that cause rain to happen sooner. That might shorten the lifetime of the cloud and have exactly the opposite temperature effect that we seek to have. So it just isn't yet clear that we know how to do this, yet less certain in terms of our ability to control it is an opposite cloud modification technique referred to as cirrus cloud thinning. So instead of reinforcing low marine clouds, we are tampering with wispy high clouds. And the problem with those clouds, they're, they're, they're so diaphanous, they don't block much incoming sunlight. The problem is that they act as a greenhouse gas and impede outgoing radiation. So if we could thin those cirrus clouds, if we could destroy them sooner than they might otherwise uh, uh, sort of disappear on their own, we might increase the outgoing flow of radiation. That would uh, help the climate problem. We don't even know the sign by which this intervention would operate reliably. It may be that it hurts rather than helps. So interesting theory. We're nowhere near understanding how to do it. Yet farther fetched, people talk about space-based interventions where we uh, perhaps go to the Lagrangian one or L1 point between the earth and the sun and put in a stable orbit there big mirrors made of who knows what that will deflect some of the incoming sunlight this ain't going to happen in this century. I, I, you know, if if we need a climate solution in our lifetime, this ain't it. People wonder about brightening the surface of the Earth by painting buildings white or by modifying the genetics of crops to make them a little lighter in color. White building roofs will perhaps cool uh, the urban heat island effect, but they're not going to do much to the global climate. GMOs gone wild to try to re-engineer crops. I sure hope we're going to uh, be cautious in respect of that. So, so again, we need lots of ideas and we need people to continue to be creative and innovate in this area. But once we run through all of these ideas, at least in my view, we return to stratospheric aerosols as being the one that we're pretty confident works because Mother Nature does it. And we've watched it many times. Uh, we're pretty confident that we could do it technologically. That's the uh, area of research in which I am among the, the, the world's leading experts, I think I can say. And so we, we understand the technology by which we would do it. We understand the cost that would be required to do it. However, 
to ensure that I'm not overselling this, there are huge prospective problems with this. And so I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm yet in favor of pushing the SAI button. And the problems with it come in two varieties. One of them is we're pretty confident it would cool the earth. We have no flipping idea what else it might do that might be bad. You, Pete, of course, have have, uh, written a leading report on how this might affect various climate variables in various large regions of the world. And so we're beginning to push forward that research. But we, we have a very coarse understanding of how this would impact localities Uh, the city of Cincinnati. We just don't have any ability to predict now how that would impact uh, any given locality. It has a high risk of doing stuff we just didn't intend. We didn't realize we were going to kill the turtle habitat in the Amazonian, you know, I'm making things up, but, um, or Uh, impact global circulations of wind and of water. Um, We're nowhere near understanding that. In fact, the amount of outdoor experiments that have been done in respect of SAI, people debate whether the number is zero or one, but it ain't higher than one. We've done virtually no flying in the atmosphere to try to understand what this would do physically, how to optimize it from an engineering standpoint. And there's decades of research that would need to be done before we could say with confidence, yes, this is a good idea. The uh, cure will will, um, not be worse than the disease. So we need to do all of that research and we may conclude that the cure is worse than the disease. All of that was the short pole in the tent. The long pole in the tent is the governance of this. We're not succeeding in governing emissions via the Paris Agreement yet. And the governance of of carbon dioxide removal would also be a very difficult problem. But the governance of stratospheric aerosol injections would be a, a problem of a sort the world quite literally has never confronted. We would need the informed consent of approximately everybody on the earth somehow to undertake an intervention that we would hope would be beneficial. We would be pretty confident it would be, but things still could go wrong. And even if they don't go wrong globally, they might go wrong locally for some groups of people. Um, The world would be sensibly fearful of such a big program. And so how we put in place a governance structure that could legitimize Uh, such an intervention is just a wicked hard problem. So we're a long way from knowing net-net whether this is a good idea, and we're a long way from having a legitimate governance structure by which to implement it. All right. Well, let's get to some of the nuts and bolts and to your speciality. Why are high-flying jets the best way to get millions of tons of material to the stratosphere? Um, there's other ideas out there. Why is it the high-flying jets are the best way to go, go about it? We start with an added, uh, altitude assumption, which assumption we haven't well researched. So what we do know is that we would need to put this stuff in the stratosphere, not in the troposphere. The layer between the two, as you well know, is referred to as the tropopause. The 
altitude of the tropopause varies by latitude. So at the equator, it's high, and at the poles, it's low. But at the equator, it's like 17 kilometers high. That varies by day and condition and, and, and so on. But let's call it 17. And we don't want to vent right above that because on that day, it might be 18. So the, the common assumption in respect of deployment altitude is 20 kilometers high. That's about 66,000 feet. That's about twice as high as your Boeing or Airbus airliner cruises. And so it's it's high. It's not rocket high, but it's it's much higher than almost any aircraft are currently able to fly. So so this is uh, it's difficult for airplanes to get there. And the first thing that that means then is that the existing aircraft uh, that we have aren't right for this mission. We do have a few airplanes that get as high as 20 kilometers, but they're spy planes that carry a guy who's a spy, or they don't carry the guy, they left him on the ground because it's a drone, and therefore they carry a camera, but they carry virtually nothing. What we need for this purpose is a high-altitude crop duster that can haul huge quantities of material up into the stratosphere and dump it and get down and get another load. And that plane just doesn't exist yet because the world hasn't needed it. But my research has demonstrated that that plane could exist if we wanted it. Uh, 20 kilometers is near the uh, boundary above which fixed-wing self-propelled air-breathing aircraft can't fly, but it's below that boundary by a kilometer or two. So we could design uh, new uh, large tankers that could uh, take material up to that altitude and vent it, but we don't have that airplane yet. And so another reason why we can't implement this program soon is that we don't have the airplane. And P.S., we would need hundreds of them to implement a global program. This isn't something that some billionaire can go do with his biz jet. Moreover, it's an intervention which, once we commence it, we would expect to continue it every day, 24 or 365 days a year for decades to a century. So it's not a one-time thing. It would be a commitment to undertake this intervention uh, for a very long period of time. But for all that, we need new aeronautical assets that we don't yet have. And uh, how much would it cost to develop such aircraft? And yeah, what would a full-scale deployment look like? Hundreds of aircraft, but hundreds of aircraft, how? Where would they be? So it turns out that putting this gunk right at the equator doesn't maximize its effectiveness. So we would likely deploy some of it at, say, 15 north and 15 south, and some of it at 30 north and 30 south. These latitudes are themselves not yet optimized, but something like such a program would make sense. And you would shift your deployment amounts into the southern, excuse me, summer hemisphere So in the northern summer, we would do more at 15 north and 15 south, less at 15, excuse me, more at 15 north and 30 north, less at 15 south and 30 south. In the southern summer, we would do the opposite. And that's because we're doing this to deflect sunlight. 
and sun, there's more sunlight in the southern hemisphere, so you would modulate your deployment quantities seasonally. The poles are warming faster than uh, the equator. And so there's the reason we wouldn't merely deploy everything at 15 north and south is we want more gunk the closer we get to the poles. And so you would, uh, again, deploy some close to the equator, but some farther from the equator. In terms of where in the world we're talking about, in terms of envisioning where 30 north and 30 south are, 30 north is Cairo, 30 south is Cape Town. Um, So it's roughly the size of the African continent and positioned approximately where the African continent is. In North America, this would be Houston and uh, the the northern tip of uh, Uruguay, for instance. But we would want to do this all over the world. Um, One thing that would be uh, not because of physics, if we put the stuff, say, in the African theater, within a couple of weeks, given the, the fact that the earth is spinning as it does, it will be at that latitude all, all around the earth. And so that east-west mixing is very efficient. As we mentioned, if we put it in the right place at the right altitude, it will flow from there to the north and south pole over the span of a year or 18 months. And so we could, as a matter of physics, deploy all from one array of bases in Africa, let's say. The reason we wouldn't want to do that is that if we're implementing this uh, program to try to solve a huge planetary problem, we would want to implement it in a way that is um, robust against natural disasters, against strikes, against changes of regime in any given country. And so we would seek uh, many latitudinal arrays of bases in Africa, in Asia and Australia, in um, uh, the Americas, uh, so that we had redundancy of bases. And if there's an earthquake that knocks out the base in Uruguay, uh, no problem, the base in Cape Town can pick up the load. And ideally, back to governance, one would hope that there isn't a Chinese program and an American program and a European program and so on. One would hope that there's a global program uh, that is trying to make decisions on behalf of the entire world. We need, by the way, to put as much of this in the Southern Hemisphere as we do in the Northern Hemisphere, or else we will goof up interhemispheric weather patterns. Uh, so we we would ideally be doing this as a global program under the direction of some thoughtful scientific directorate. I've just described the Wizard of Oz. That's not the world we live in, uh, creating a global globally empowered entity that can operate all over the world in everybody's airspace as need be. Again, that's a that's a place to which we haven't evolved as a species, but to do this well, that's ideally the sort of program that one would seek. So you, yeah, you, you made clear some of the geographical constraints, the, the latitudes you need to operate at, and um, I guess you're saying that I think, and I share the sentiment that um, a global deployment would be the wisest and best way forward. But what are the constraints on individual nations or even? individual billionaires. Musk, remember, just spent $23 billion to buy a social media platform. Uh, What are the prospects of of very, very rich individuals or individual states 
in coalition with a few places at different latitudes. What's the, what's the prospect of them doing this individually? And would we know? We would know. So that the, the billionaire boogeyman story uh, derives, of course, from David Victor's green finger uh, conjecture, a sort of James Bond-esque uh, supervillain geoengineering the world from his private island lair with his biz jet. In fact, what this requires is hundreds of airliner-sized aircraft operating multiple sorties per aircraft every day. And so this isn't something that could be done secretly. Uh, we would know that this were being done well before it started because somebody would be building the Air Force needed to do it, and that wouldn't go unobserved. We would certainly note as soon as somebody is flying hundreds of sorties a day to a very unusual altitude. Um, so there's no way this can be done secretly. Neither is even Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos wealthy enough to do this for very long anyway. This would take, again, tens of billions of dollars. That would exhaust the fortunes of Bezos or Musk in a decade. I don't think they're going to undertake that. But the, the greater constraint than the financial one is that somebody would shoot those airplanes down if they did that without the permission of the world's superpowers. And we could argue with Russia and China uh, and the European Union as to which one gets to shoot the airplanes down first, but we're all going to shoot them down. This is just, I'm being flippant here, but the prospect that the world would stand by and permit some power that does not have a military air force to mess with the climate of the entire world, that just ain't going to happen. So in order to unilaterally geoengineer the world's climate, you need an air force and a military infrastructure capable of defending that unauthorized intervention. Well, now we're down to a handful of countries uh, that realistically could undertake a unilateral deployment. And in this arena, unlike, say, nuclear weapons, where there's all the incentive in the world for me to have my program and not have, you know, not hope that you don't have your program and you have the opposite incentives. Uh, there, there are very good reasons in the nuclear arena to act unilaterally, not to blow stuff up unilaterally, but to have your own sovereign capability. Those, those incentives don't really operate in this arena. There are lots of reasons why it's in everybody's interest to cooperate on such a program. That doesn't mean it will happen. There are centrifugal forces as well, but it's not all centrifugal forces in this case. There are um, uh, uh, incentives to cooperate. And so I am, I am hopeful, but I'm not, not going to call that a prediction. I, I'm hopeful that the world could converge on a single global program uh, directed by a multilateral, multinational coalition uh, that would be able to undertake a global program. What I fear are multiple sovereign programs that maybe are coordinating with each other, but maybe are not. That, I think, is the, the path to sort of uh, geoengineering governance hell. And so there are things that many of us are uh, seeking to undertake in the coming decade to try to reduce the likelihood that parties try to act unilaterally and augment the likelihood that uh, if there's any action, it is concerted.
you've put forth an ideal of global governance of solar geoengineering or solar radiation modification, but you've also tempered your idealism with the realistic fact that the world consists of almost 200 countries of very different capabilities and powers and interests. Where do you see the balance between idealism and realism? Where do you see the possibility of effective, relatively broad governance of SRM, and how could the world get there? I more nearly should ask you this question, but but it is the hard one. Again, as Eastern Europe tries to blow itself up, it's hard to imagine getting in a room with Russia and coordinating on uh, a program such as this. You say that I've outlined an ideal. I wouldn't have my feelings hurt if you called it a fairy tale. And yet, if you got to hope for something in this arena, this is what one should hope for. One should hope that the the major powers of the earth uh, see it as in their interest both to cooperate with each other and to be inclusive of the lesser powers of the earth. This will uh, affect the entire globe. And so one would hope for the broadest coalition that could be managed uh, if we're undertaking this at all. That sounds like the UN, and yet I think the UN is perhaps not the right structure in a variety of ways. Maybe it's the least bad structure that now exists, but this is an instance where executive action would need to be taken every day. And I don't think the UN, as currently constituted, is quite right for that. But how would we bring my governance fairy tale into being? Uh, The bad news is I don't know. The good news is I don't have to know yet. I don't think that this is something that we are going to do in the first half of this century at minimum. I part company with many of my colleagues on that, but I just don't see it. The development of the infrastructure, the confirmation of the science, the governance uh, superstructure that would need to be built, I just don't see that happening in the very near future. And so the fact that I can't yet envision a solution um, doesn't frighten me very much. We've got a long time between now and then to try to work it out. In the interim, what we need to do is take forward steps where we can take forward steps in every one of these arenas. So certainly in the governance arena, uh, certainly in the scientific arena, the, the this non-research uh, agreement, as I would phrase it, that has been uh, circulated recently by um, social scientists in this field is just the wrong uh, answer. We need research as quickly as we can get it to better understand the the, the physical uh, impacts that such an intervention would have. And back to my little row, uh, we need to better understand aeronautically, financially, logistically, organizationally uh, how we would do this. And so I my uh, sort of uh, joke now is I've got uh, a lifetime's worth of research to do, and I've got far less than a lifetime in which to do it, but therefore time to time to get busy. When we were talking about cutting greenhouse gas emissions earlier in this conversation, the necessity of doing so, or at the very least the, the net benefit of doing so, is constrained by the fact that people today uh, have limited willingness to sacrifice now for the benefit of future generations. So in other words, governments are constrained by public opinion. 
And that's that's to some degree even true in authoritarian states, perhaps less so than in democracies, but but there's still some constraint. What's your opinion or assessment on the relationship between public opinion and perception of uh, CDR and uh, solar radiation modification and government's apparent reluctance to engage these issues. Is that one of the reasons that governments are slow to dive into these issues? Is, is there a fear of backlash or is, is, are, are there other factors at play in your assessment? I think it's mostly that the issue of what to do after we get to net zero is so far into the future that people aren't uh, terribly focused on it. And while these solutions may have limited relevance before we get to net zero, certainly flue gas capture is necessary in that regard. And some amount of carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere will be necessary even to get to net zero. But the primary significance in the history of the world, I'll call it, if we were standing in the year 3000 looking back at at this era, I think the vast majority of the CDR that we will ever do, we will do after net zero, not before. And the vast majority, maybe 100% of the SAI that we will ever do, we will do after net zero, not before. So the prospective tools in Pandora's toolbox are ones whose relevance is mostly in respect of the after net zero world. And there are just very few people uh, whose imaginations stretch out far enough to try to imagine the world after net zero. What in the world gives you optimism in such a sometimes disheartening field such as climate change? So so I acknowledge that I am Mr. Sunshine. I'm just sharing good news after good news here. <laughs> um, but humans are clever. We will find a way. We sort of have to find a way. I'm afraid that the vision of sweaty great-grandchildren a century from now doesn't motivate people today very much. But when it's our own property being washed away by the sea, when the, when the climate damages get much more acute, I think humanity will begin to act. I, I'm afraid in some sense in this arena, only loss instructs. But since I'm pretty confident there will be loss, we'll probably get some instruction at some point. And so I think that humanity will begin to respond much more urgently to this problem in the future than it is doing right now. That does mean that some quantum of climate change is unavoidable. I think people broadly imagine that maybe we can avoid this problem, and I don't think that that will happen. But it must be that we find solutions to these problems. I do occasionally encounter people who ask whether they should even have children because the world will be so horrible uh, in the future due to climate change. Uh, nuclear war still scares me a heck of a lot more than climate change. So I, I don't see this in, in that arena. But, but we are at risk of exporting to the future much more serious problems than I think most people are aware that we are likely to export to the future. And so I do worry that our great-grandchildren will look back upon us 
uh, and wonder what the heck we were thinking. But again, these are difficult problems. How do you convince people today to adopt unwanted consequences uh, to speed the the movement towards net zero? This is a this is a difficult problem, and it's not big bad Exxon either. This is a cake we're all baking together. Everybody who puts gas in their tank and you know turns on their home heat is a part of the the problem. Uh, uh, certainly, me included. But I guess hoping to give people a more accurate view of the future is the contribution that I am seeking to make in hastening uh, momentum towards solutions. Our guest on Challenging Climate has been Wake Smith. His new book is Pandora's Toolbox, The Hopes and Hazards of Climate Intervention. It is available now on Cambridge University Press. Wake Smith, thank you for joining us. Gents, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere, and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.